Hey, everybody. Good morning. This is Claudia Shamba welcoming you to Ask a Leader on my November 12, 2013 edition. Today we have Gail Jabour and Daniel Tigner, a couple who's recently published The Time of Your Life, Everyone Has a Story. They hail from, oh, Canada and present some compelling personal life accounts from a diverse range of 40 retirees living throughout Canada's Ontario province and a little bit in Quebec too. Afterward, some very timely coverage will be with Robin Leffler, president of Costa Masons for Responsible Government, with a keen eye on the trend of public discourse in her fair city. Don't go away. We'll be right back after a short interlude. This is Claudia Shamba, your host here on Ask a Leader today. Last Friday was the StoryCorps National Day of Listening. Listening is the hallmark of the project completed by my first guest today, Gail Jabour and Daniel Tigner. They've recently launched their book entitled The Time of Your Life, Everyone Has a Story. It's a compilation of 40 retirees, reflection of life on that side of their workaday worlds. Now, Gail Jabour studied communications at Ryerson University in Toronto, and throughout her extensive affiliation with the Canadian Radio Television Telecommunications Commission, the Canadian equivalent of our Federal Communications Commission, FCC, she has a mix of Canadian Broadcasting Corporation production work. As a retiree herself, Gelgeborg currently volunteers in a number of organizations and collaborates with a music therapist, with residents of a long-term health care facility. Daniel Tigner completed a graduate degree in education with qualifications um, in moral and religious education and English writing and literature from McGill University. He's taught high school English and theater as well as college-level English as a second language. He has done extensive research into the healing and spiritual qualities attributed to trees and plants, which lends a unique and compelling attribute toward healing, fielding, I'm sorry, a worldly, worthy, let me just try that one again, folks, compelling, this is a compelling attribute toward fielding a worthy narrative, such as what we experience in the time of your life. This book has been incorporated into the curriculum at Social service worker program that's at St. Lawrence College, Ontario, Canada, and at the Blitzstein Institute for Women at Hebrew College, Hebrew Theological College in Chicago. Daniel Tigner and Gail Jewer come to us today from Quebec. Welcome both of you to Ask a Leader. Thank you, Claudia. Thank you. That was such a beautiful introduction. Well, I... We're happy, happy to do this with you. Really well, happy. And thank you for that beautiful intro. Well, it's the way I believe to get December going on our best possible start. Well, would you both tell us about what hatched this project? What was the impetus for taking these narratives? I can start with that. I retired very early in my life. I was probably one of the earlier people that found out what burnout was. I had a very, uh, quite a good job in the government, but it was very stressful because you weren't allowed to use your creativity. And I think that that was what permeated through my 10 years there. I left the government early, I retired, and all my friends were still working. And they all would say to me, Gail, what do you do all day? We want to know, because I was the only one 
that wasn't working. And all my friends were working. I had to sit around and wait for them to finish work, and then I could go out and play with them after they finished work. But they all wanted to know what I did. And I thought, well, if they want to know what I do, they probably want to know what a lot of people do because this innate curiosity in people, I think, is there, and it lended itself at that particular time. So I had the idea in 1996 to do this project. I wrote it all out. I had no one to collaborate with. I met Daniel, who was already a published author, and thus came the book. He said, why don't we collaborate? And that's how it came to fruition. And Dan- That was uh, a year ago, so that's how long it took. That's how long it was on the burner. So it seems as Daniel's a, a soulmate in terms of how to mine the gold in all these unassuming profiles that you were managing to unearth. Yes, give we, give we yourself credit, very, Daniel. You know, fruitful, uh, uh, you know, um, collaboration. We worked very well together, and uh, we we bring different things, but we we are very harmonious in our work. Indeed. Well, the the breadth of these narratives is as extensive as one could imagine. How did you select those whom you approached for this project? It's a range of of 50 to some 100-year-aged people, and their, pro, their, their work experience is extremely varied. Um, so tell us about that, how you found them. Uh, initially, they were people we knew uh, and that we thought were, were interesting people. And, uh, and uh, we then, as our vision you know, clarified itself, uh, we we uh, met other people through other people. Uh, that so that was one element of it. Uh, but essentially, we wanted to have half men, half women, fifty to to one hundred, with diverse experiences and diverse cultures. And these people really are representative of people uh, across North America. And Gail, I think you also have something to say about that. The selection. Well, the best example I can give is uh, I was in a restaurant one night, just a very normal family restaurant, and there was a long table of 15 men, and there were all these Harley-Davidson bikes outside the restaurant. And I thought, what are they doing here? Why are bikers in this restaurant? Well, it turns out they have a general, an annual meeting there every year, and then they have their, their little uh, monthly meetings. So they were all talking. The chairman had a long, long beard. He looked like a Santa Claus beard. And I don't know if you've noticed him in the picture. He's a lovely-looking man. So he went up to pay the bill, and I went up to him, and I said, how would you like to be interviewed for a book? He said, I'd love it. So that's how he came. He was a a Harley-Davidson biker. He was uh, 61. He had a really interesting life. And they work for charity. I learned so much about that. They work for, uh, they have the, the breast cancer ride, they have uh, all sorts of things, and that is generally what they do, besides getting on their bikes and traveling around. He said he's been all through the United States and visited many, many states, and their life journey is just going around meeting people. In the winter, he takes care of old cars. He has five old cars in his garage, and he works on the cars. 
Well, that's just one thing. That was one example one of example. finding someone. You've, and some of them were in your own sort of, we'll call it the brain trust, your social trust, your professional network where there were, uh, there's a range, folks. There's the, uh, a retired hockey player who became born again on the NHL uh, clock watch and a uh, retired um, affiliate of the entertainment industry, a palliative care nurse, and so many. So, but I just, for, for people to get an idea of what this item is, and it has a, has a fit, folks, on your little holiday gift list, um, that it's apparent that you, uh, that, well, I'm going to say that the narratives, they have a feel of a person opening up on a long bus ride, like in close quarters, intimate, mm-hmm. and at gentle pace. I, I really want to commend you for how you, uh, as I, you set it up, it's a verbatim account of what they've told you. You haven't tinkered really with what their expressions are. It's very casual as well as insightful. I really applaud you for that. Well, so, thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Bill. Yes, that was, you've described it wonderfully on a, a bus ride where you where you end up in an in a authentic and often intimate conversation with another person. And I, I mean that in close quarters. That's the, the feeling that you're getting from this. That yes. It, if for a, the more time-honored acquaintance that uh, would avail this kind of opportunity would be maybe at a, not a dysfunctional, at a functional family holiday dinner gathering or meal gathering where a, a, a relative will sort of push back from the table and start to talk a little bit reflectively. But that, that close quarters kind of feel of yeah. them recalling various uh, workaday world experiences and mm-hmm. how they bridged their workaday world and interest that they had into their retirement. Mm-hmm. So they're so they're they have a lot to tell all of us about what you uh, what your portfolio might be, how you build that portfolio so that throughout your life you can tap into that. So I, for those of you who've just tuned in to Ask a Leader here on KUCI 80.9 FM in Irvine, my guests are Gail Jabour and Daniel Tigner talking about their recently published book, The Time of Your Life. Everyone has a story. It's a general store publishing house book, and it's it's available on Amazon, of course, and on uh, eBooks. So um, let's talk about some of these individual uh, situations. Um, I, I, I the spoiler alert about the uh, the bikey. I don't want to give him too much time because there's a lot more said about a lot by a lot of other individuals. But the the biker did say something kind of interesting that he found a, a greater receptivity toward bikers, t- towards the Hells Angels over on uh, the south side of the Canadian-USA border. And that thought that with Canadian nice, it wasn't, they're not nice enough to the Hells Angels as we are over on the other side. That was kind I, of interesting. Actually, yeah, they're Harley-Davidson guys. Or, yeah, Harley, Harley, Harley guys. I think the uh, there's a, ver- a friendliness in the uh, American culture that uh, kind of a welcoming ness. Um, I think that's that's there. Maybe because everyone's come from elsewhere. Canada is, is also very welcoming, but for some reason, the I think that maybe the biking biking tradition is is really you know it represents something in the American psyche as well. You know, a sense of freedom, perhaps, or. Adventure. It's an established relationship. Right. Well, so I'd like to know, um, StoryCorps is getting to be more and more uh, familiar, and people are sort of used to that intergenerational or a uh, interactive kind of method of te- teasing that story out. Do you have 
uh, any insights you can offer us that make so rich what uh, these maybe not so always introspective uh, storytellers are, are giving you? Uh, I could cite the example of Please. Sylvia Sutherland. She was a classmate of mine at Ryerson University. And she married a professor. And in those days, in the late 60s, 70s, the students did not marry their professors. She did. He became a uh, dean of Sir Sanford Fleming College, which is a, a very big college in Ontario. She became the mayor of that town. And he was quite a bit older than her. And he told her, when he dies not to leave the town and to make sure she had friends from all ages, all group ages, because most of her friends would die early around that time, and she would not have any young friends left to depend on if she lived longer than he did. And the other thing is that they didn't have any pensions. We always assume a mayor for 20 years would have some kind of a pension and a, a dean of a college, but neither of them had a big pension. So she had to find another job, which she said she really enjoyed, but, you know, she needed to bring in the money as well. And I found that really quite, quite a unique story because they were two highly intellectual beings and lived a really good life but ended up, um, you know, not so wealthy in their old age. Exactly. I think another, um, um, from a most unassuming source, sprang a wise and a street, a very sweet story. Gail, I'm thinking of Elizabeth Lennon, who you would be kind Elizabeth uh, Lennon. Le Lemon. And uh, yeah, why don't you tell us a little bit about her? She's a year old woman who is a recovering alcoholic. And how we found her was just a woman that I knew that was helping me out with some typing, I said, you know, maybe your mother would like to be interviewed. She said, I'll ask her, and she would love to do it. So I went and I met with her, and she was a wonderful woman, highly intelligent, extremely well-read, and she was sober for six years. She went to AA, but she said she found it very repetitive, so she stopped going there. She didn't feel it did her any good. She just decided she would stop drinking. And she said it, it crushed her body, the alcohol ruined her body, but her mind came back. Her mind was alert. And uh, she had some very interesting thoughts on death and dying and told her grandchild that, you know, she was 66 and she may not be around that much longer. She wanted her grandchildren to understand. They say, she said, you know, Nana may not be around. I want you to know that. And then, uh, if you want me to read her last chapter, which I think gives a really interesting perspective on life and the, spirituality. The very closing, I think, would be lovely. Okay. Please, when Dale. I was younger, I thought this life was our hell. That's how my life was at that time, because of all the tribulations, emotional, physical, and mental pain that I went through. Now I'm still an emotional person in one sense, but I'm more in control, better able to handle it. I think we are here to prepare us for our spiritual life. Life here is the hard part, but once we're into our spiritual life, there will be peace. We will be ready to have life in the spiritual world. Elizabeth Lennon. Elizabeth Lemon. And there, there, 
many of them sort of bridging that sort of their secular, spiritual, religious um, realms in um, thinking of what whether there is uh, religion and faith in their lives and wh- how that uh, helps them accept the inevitable end of their lives and um, and it, it's it's remarkable uh, like in the case of the the physician the Jewish retired physician who talks about he's very matter of fact about his faith and um, or how he's uh, negotiating that having been the uh, one of the few survivors of or a, a, a descendant of one of, uh, of the few survivors of course uh, from the Holocaust and how he sort he bridges that spirituality it's sort of as the, the his own spirituality seems to be budding through his introspection brought forth from your bringing out his narrative did you see that unfolding as you were talking to him I met yeah, to- yes he's uh, this is uh, dr. Manny Gluck is his name and he was uh, in his uh, mid 80s a very very uh, refined, very uh, well-spoken, soft-spoken man, um, very gentle, uh, well-known in his field, and um, articulate. But he opened up. In fact, he had said to me that he had actually considered doing his own biography. But, you know, many people talk about that but never never get to it. And somehow uh, in we we really connected with people at a, in a deep way and they opened up and really shared poured, poured out their hearts and their and their real their real core stories uh, that uh, that really sh- the core stories that, that shaped their have shaped their lives and have been their true uh, learnings and have revealed you know their gifts and their and and the best of them and and you really are both of you. I have to commend you too at how adept you are in uh, working through their stories as they map out major transformations. There is the the uh, Native American Earl Kamanda. I don't know how Kamanda is that. Yeah, that's correct. And so you we can all the way through his sort of realizing his his tribal responsibility from what was a, a very uh, non-tribal kind of uh, beginning and uh, how he. Uh, helped sort of turn around the 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 um, the life there uh, his membership with the First Nation others uh, the assembly of the First Nations to institutionalize a, a sort of healthier social order so that they may thrive and continue yes he has been you know Earl Commander is is a grand chief and very very knowledgeable and deeply committed and involved in in uh, you, you know native uh, history, native uh, social change, uh, native spirituality, but also a very you know I found him a very compassionate man who very open. Uh, we uh, we had a book launch where we had 200 people come. That was in September, and Earl Commanda uh, did a, a prayer and a smudging to open our uh, book launch. We were very you know thrilled to have him do that. Oh, my word. I'm sorry I missed out on that. There's nothing like a smudge or a, a whiff of the sage smoke in uh, in various rituals practiced. Oh, my goodness. Mm-hmm. So, well, he, I guess that's the one and only appearance he'll put in. You may Maybe he'll show up at another one for you in, around Canada. <laughs> it's quite possible. He's very open to and very, you know, honors 
the tradition certainly honored you know our our opening of our book I want to um, also talk about how with this book in hand that many people after having read this book uh, can take these narratives and get an understanding for how to engage those in their own sphere. And I don't mean they're going to all have to go out and publish their own book, but I think the kind of engagement, and I don't, I know that word is closely getting co-opted with share and journey and all that kind of thing, but it's, it's really what's, what's possible in how the two of you lead us into, uh, into taking these stories. And I want to say um, the, the final one is a woman who has become a palliative care nurse, partly from her nursing training and partly from her familial responsibilities that she had assumed over the years. And I say that uh, it gives us a means for taking bringing together, taking, engaging, I still use that word, I can't, I can't avoid it, uh, engaging those that we're going to meet in the holiday setting, uh, some, engaging them in thoughts that haven't been spoken yet. The unspoken is what this book is all about. I don't think, I get the impression that some of these people have never put those words out and uh, out uh, beyond themselves. And uh, it, it's a sort of a, it's our playbook for how to to make the most of being together with our elders. And the elders have so much to tell us. Mm-hmm. Yes, that's absolutely right. And in fact, we borrowed, we borrowed very much from the native um, elder tradition. And we believe that, you know, it's tremendously healing for people to share their stories. But it's also tremendously uh, beneficial for for everyone when people share their stories and uh, you know because people everyone has you know in this journey learned something of of worth jan is uh, jan um, who was a, who was a nun is a was a palliative care nurse uh, she was quite senior as well as an as a nurse is a um, totally remarkable gentle being but with a profound compassion and a, and an amazing intuition about you know she would sense when people were uh, going to pass over and uh, because of that uh, she was you know and because of that she was with them and at many many times and uh, so reading Jeanne's story is is uh, a real gift uh, and I believe it's a story that will profoundly uh, help people working in palliative care and people that are close to passing over as well and people that are close to those passing over because it's that's a that's a, a threshold or a, a window of opportunity unlike any i will say myself i i, I was uh, privileged enough and that's the the th- theme throughout this for those who in, in the book who had experienced similar things i was privileged enough to be able to be at present when both of my parents died and um, that that Jan talks a lot about that setting and it's uh, it's just remarkable and I think one it's of the ho- gift. Yeah, oh gift, it's a really, gift to have been able to do that and the 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 element of just simply listening how much will bring to us an awareness of what is present 
And that's what you two have been doing. For those of you who've just joined us here on Ask a Leader, my guests are Gail Jabour and Daniel Tigner talking about their recently launched book, The Time of Your Life. Everyone has a story, and they surely do, uh, not just in this book, but where we're going to be with our loved ones, uh, whether they're with us at the meal table or maybe we can... We can write to them and ask for them um, to respond in kind if we can't be with them. That story's still there, and there's ways, so many different ways to try to reach them. Well, I want to find out from both of you, do you have any indication of how the 40 people whom you interviewed became more interactive, more vocal, and put themselves out there to a greater extent with family and friends? Can you both tell me about that? Uh, I can tell you about uh, one of the uh, participants, Victor Lauren. He is a poet. He's 72 years old. He started to write poetry. And we were invited to a retired teacher's annual general meeting a week ago. Daniel and I were invited to speak about our book, and they had featured Victor's poetry in in their periodical. So I find that a lot of the people, uh, another gentleman, Bill Connolly, wrote a song called uh, uh, Do You Know Where Your Heart Is or uh, something, I forget the name of it. He sang it at our book launch, and he got a standing ovation. And he said in all the years he sung that song, he's never had a standing ovation. So it's these private stories, these, uh, I think, as I said once before, they're extraordinarily people that are just ordinary. I believe. Extraordinarily ordinary people living these beautiful lives just like celebrities. They're almost, in our, in our minds, they're the celebrities. They're the real celebrities. They are. So, Not the ones that we watch on those uh, funny shows at night. These are the real celebrities. All the dimensions. Well, who you really are, I believe, is what Bill Connolly. Who you really, yes, Bill's song. It's, and he's made a CD of that song. And uh, he just gives it away. He doesn't charge any money for it. He, a lot of these people are, they're not wealthy, but they're very philanthropic in their own way. They're giving back in many, many ways. And I want to mention as we begin to close the interview, but we're, we're not done yet. We've got some business to conduct, too. But the the, uh, the feature, a persistent quality of their portfolios is that they had music in their earlier years so that bridging their life from work to retirement, that music was a resonant kind of occupation, a hobby that they could um, they could perform, they could deepen, so that the, their lives were enriched as they continue out in their retirement. It's a phenomenon, both the men and the women. It was. It seemed to be the red thread. And folks, <laughs> and they also mentioned, you need to have some interest before you don't. You're not going to take them up. That's you're, right. you're not going to be an old dog learning absolutely new hobby tricks. That's what you bring into that retirement. You've already exactly. started. Exactly. I think Don Gibbon said, if you didn't play golf before you retired, you're not going to play golf after you retire. And if it's said enough times, I guess uh, we can all take that utterly seriously. So I would like to mention to everyone that. There are a number of ways besides the usual ways of of Amazon. I'm not going to give them any. They've got so many plugs. Jeff Bezos, you really do. There's ways to get uh, more about the the book. You can get um, go to the website revealinglightproductions.com or the publisher www.g 
S-P-H. That's the uh, great, I'm going to look that up, the um, General Store Publishing House. Thank you. That's uh, gsph.com, or uh, there's 819 area code, 682-0205, as well as ordering is on the e-books. So I believe that's all the time we have. Gail Jabur and Dan Tigner, writers, uh, prepares publishers of the book, recently launched The Time of Your Life, Everyone Has a Story. Thank you, both of you, for Thank joining you. us today. Thank you very much for Thank the you. opportunity. It's good to have you. And I want to wish you happy winter holidays. Okay. Thanks Thank a you. lot. Happy reading to you. Happy reading. Well, we're going to be heading back in to um, my uh, next guest will be Robin Leffler, the president of Costa Masons for Responsible Government with First Amendment Rights at Stake public comments in just a minute so let's go to the station break we'll be right back in just a brief one that was sweet honey and the rock nobody sings it like they do folks well my next guest back here on ask a leader uh, is, is robin Leffler. We're going to take up the subject of public oversight and input that is shrinking in and around Orange County. We considered that this part of the hour with Robin, who is president of Costa Masons for City Council, um, to talk about this playing out in Costa Mesa. So it's a ripe topic in that their City Council will take this very issue up tonight at 6 p.m. A little bit about Robin Leffler. She grew up in Pasadena and in Corona del Mar. She's been educated over the years at Orange Coast College. She took an interest in local development starting in 1999, and we're going to ask her a little bit about that as we open. So after the 2010 election we Zoomed to here, uh, uh, Jim Righeimer and Gary Monahan to the Costa Mesa City Council, a host of procedural and substantive changes were taking place the way uh, of, of how the city was doing business. The dissenting residents eventually unified under Costa Masons for Responsible Government. Robin Leffler serves as their president. I'm delighted to have her here on Ask a Leader as this situation continues to develop. Welcome to the show, Robin. Thank you, Claudia. I'm thrilled to be here. I really appreciate that you asked me to participate. Well, we aren't going to do this without you. It's just the moment is here. It's uh, ever unfolding. And so let's just open and talk about, first, what drew you into local government participation in 1999? (laughs) Somebody on my street tried to build a three-story house. And we were pretty sure the neighbors were looking at it, and we just thought it was a big, ugly house until that third story went up, and it had nine-foot windows in it. And we thought, well, this is only zoned for two stories. So we went down to the city, found out, yeah, they weren't supposed to build it there, but they'd got their plans approved. So we went through months of hearings. Finally, they had to tear down what they built, and, uh, and they sued the city. They got some money for it. But while that was going on, I saw a lot of other very interesting issues go by, and I didn't want to comment on them because I, I was new. I didn't, you know, but then I just realized nobody was speaking about these things, and things were happening almost every week that would affect people's quality of life. So I started attending and paying attention and um, just kind of went from there. And now I am um, the president of a very, very involved grassroots group and we 
we frequently speak to the council and take up issues that interest us and are tried to affect the um, last election, and we got one good person on, and we're going to be heavily involved in the next. You did, and we had um, we had her on, and we're, we'll, she may come up as we talk about the process here. Ah, we're going to move good. quickly toward uh, what is at stake, ladies and gentlemen. Uh, you heard Robin talk about she started out with uh, some square footage, not even an acre, and she moved up to an entire city where at stake now is the well-known institution known as public comment. Let's first start with what had been the status quo with how, uh, not citizens, uh, folks, residents, constituents, let's think most broadly here, constituents (laughs) in Costa Mesa were availed an opportunity to be heard. What was the previous rule and and, uh, the convention and the protocol? Well, I think it's the same in in most every city. Sometime near the beginning of the meeting, the public can come and address the council, and uh, they can talk about anything they want to talk about as long as it has something to do with the city and it's not on that particular night's agenda. So it's just, it's basic free speech. People come to bring something to the attention of the council. Um, they could they could criticize. They could just as easily praise, or they could announce an upcoming event, a charity. They could call attention to a problem in their neighborhood. Uh, this has been going on for, for, I don't know, maybe as long as Costa Mesa has been a city. And I think we only found one city in all of California where this wasn't the case. Um, it's it's the this. Do you want me to talk about the change? That well, well, well first of all, yeah. and it's but and the timing is that it's the beginning of each of the council sessions. There's, there's always a right. closed session that cities begin with. And then at the beginning, then citizens can register something. And it was a fertile moment, uh, opportunity for policymakers to hear about something that may not even have occurred to them. And that's oh. the interactive effect every Every uh, uh, civilized society wants to have occur. Oh, absolutely. I've seen the people bring something that is happening in their neighborhood, and the council act on it and address it. And, and then they come back a couple weeks later, and they're so excited, and they thank the council. Oh, you know, really appreciate it. Well, people in Costa Mesa are going to lose the chance to do that. And, well, and from your experience, having attended so many meetings since 1999, is that there were all ages, all types, and that was before it was before everybody's bedtime when they could do that. So, um, there, right, there were, there were young uh, constituents and old constituents, and so there, there was a range that took up this opportunity very earnestly. Oh, yeah. I was just going back over some meetings to prepare for this, and I saw, uh, I think, an 85-year-old man who'd had a stroke. He couldn't even speak very well, but he he said what he wanted. And and then four teenagers, obviously from a government class, they had a project. They were nervous, but they they went up to the um, microphone, and they asked the city if they would please consider building a youth center. It was really cute. Yes. So now... In the over the last, I believe there have been four different uh, settings, uh, meetings where the this new rule is um, a, there's an attempt to codify that. Let's then, Robin Leffler, have you tell us what will 
What is the change underway? And we'll talk about how that works. But well, let's what hope is... it's not underway. But there's a very, very slim chance we can talk the majority out of it. But we, we just need to, you know, maybe they'll listen. Um, somebody told me it's the holiday season. That's another problem. But she said, it's the holiday season. Let's believe in a miracle. So well, the, sometimes <laughs> take that. The holiday season, I think, is the nefarious underlining of the, uh, of the MO for getting this right uh, institutionalized without the scrutiny of a broader public. So All kinds of things happen at the holiday season. You're right. Right. Okay, so the mayor recently decided That's that... That's Mayor Righeimer. This is Mayor Jim Righeimer. Recently decided that only 10 people would be allowed to speak at the normal time. And then the rest would have to wait till the end of the meeting. And the 10 are randomly selected from those who fill out a speaker card. And the right to speak is granted by the Brown Act. I read the whole thing a couple times in the last few days. And the Brown Act also says that people don't have to sign up or sign in to participate in a public meeting. Um, And the municipal code doesn't allow our mayor the right to reorder the meeting on a whim either. He was finally reminded of that, and so he's already violated the code, and now he wants to go back and actually change the code. So they are going to vote on it tonight. And just if anybody wants to come down, the address of our city hall is 77 Fair Drive. Okay, well, it's, we're going to remind we'll people of that. Later. <laughs> no, we'll, no, we can we can mention that several times because I All want right, people good. to have. I think by now they've been trained to have pen and paper in front of them or laptop or whatever. Mm-hmm. So let's let's go back now. Ten people would be randomly selected. And so mm-hmm. there's two leaps of faith here. First of all, there, there are two aspects to that. What do you think generally is an average of the number of people who previously contributed during this public comment period at the beginning? I went down, I went back through several of the minutes, and it looks like it's anywhere from maybe 7 to 15 usually. Sometimes um, there'll be some hot issue, and we could get 20. We may have had as many as 30, but I, I, I've been paying attention for 16 years, and I can only think of maybe a dozen times that the the public comments went over half an hour, maybe 45 minutes, maybe close to an hour. That's a dozen times in 16 years. I would think our council can handle it. They could could just kind of step up and tolerate that once in a while, you know? Well, absolutely. That goes without saying. I just want to take apart the other aspect of that is that there's a leap of faith in it being a random selection. We don't see, there's nobody throwing up on an overhead projection, all of the people that signed in, and they can sign in, they can be identified, they, uh, they may, I think, do they, are they required to say what they want to speak about? So there's... Well, no. Whether they want to do public comments or an agenda item, and if they have to, if they want to do an agenda item, they have to wait that has until to that t- item's right. called. But for the public but item, that it is the public it. comment, they don't have to say it. But they don't even have to sign in. I, I didn't know that. That's right. In the Brown Act. Exactly, exactly. I saw that too. So then, um, so the number is reduced, and then the screen, there's screen. I mean, I never know when people are randomly selecting questions for a, a public uh, speaking engagement, whether that those were uh, carefully vetted instead of really random. So that's that. there's a great deal of leap of faith. And so what happens then with the remaining public comments that were requested, more than the 10 that would be held until the very end of all the consent calendar, which could be 11 or 12 o'clock at night. Not just the consent calendar, the whole agenda. Um, yes, in Costa Mesa, it's frequently near midnight or even later. 
So, it's so, so far, uh, the, nobody's. The, the first time he did this, the, the sixteen people wanted to speak. Now that was unusual in Costa Mesa, but we've had sixteen people speak, and it's only taken thirty-three minutes. I looked that up. Well, can- and and so six people were trailed. And by the end of the meeting, not one of them was there. And by trail, you mean postponed to the end yes. of the entire meeting. Yes. So, And so I'm just wondering if you could map, um, I'm catching you a sort of a, with, uh, from the uh, off the side here, with uh, has there been an increase of more public comment since the 2010 elections? Yes. <laughs> I would say a number of people have gotten much more involved, much more concerned um, much more vocal, and they hear some criticism, which makes them uncomfortable. Um, I, you know, I'm not going to say that I know what they're thinking because their their reasoning is is wrong. They're saying the public comments are um, uh, slowing down the meeting and they can't get to the other business of the city in a timely way. But that's not true because I checked the minutes of several several months, and it's it's not delaying the meeting at all. So. Perhaps they don't like the criticism, but then that goes with the job, and they get praised too. And like we mentioned, they get other concern, community concerns. Indeed, for I just want to remind everybody. My guest for this part of the Ask a Leader Hour is Robin Leffler. She's president of Costa Masons for Responsible Government here on KUCI eighty-eight point nine FM in Irvine, streaming live in Council Chambers, the World Round on KUCI.org. and uh, we're talking about um, it is a capricious. Uh, maneuver, a discussion of, of uh, changing the public comments rule. I want to know if there was a violation of the Brown Act, is there some kind of remedy uh, for uh, rolling back some of the actions so that, uh, that the uh, more sunlight, because that's what the Brown Act is meant to do, is put the sunlight on governmental procedure. Um, what, what, how is that being taken up, Robin? <laughs> Well, we'll certainly mention some things tonight. Um, then I guess our legal remedy is is to go to the court, and we're probably not going to do that. We're not a rich citizens group, but somebody may. Um, and that's unfortunate that it has to go that far, and I really hope it doesn't go that far because, you know, you mentioned that this is arbitrary and comp- capricious as a classic debt. De- definition of that what could be more arbitrary than a lottery randomly picking 10 names it becomes a lottery which becomes gambling and are they gambling with our free speech that really the right to free speech should not depend on the luck of luck of the draw well when so many people have something to say and that's I, that's a goal i think we share i mean i'm in the i'm public radio community radio media and we it's all about mm-hmm. engagement and broader broader sorts of public uh pu- discourse. Uh, While we talk about um, this rule uh, being considered, uh, I'd like to know, Robin Leffler, whom does Mayor Righeimer say is the constituency for this rule change? (laughs) That's really interesting. Well, he says that because this public comment has slowed down the meeting, that people can't get to the their business, their other business late, which could be a hearing for a new development or it could be a new ordinance the city wants to pass, and people want to come to speak to those, and so it's not fair to them. Um, 
and they're part of the public, too. Well, some of them are. Some of them are paid to be there, though. They sit in the audience, and they're um, they're there to present a project. There's a time and a place for that. What I think is really interesting it's, um, is the, the time I, that, I, that I looked at this, and I found out that there was absolutely no factual basis for this rule. On October 15th, we had... Seven speakers took 17 and a half minutes. Ten one, 11 speakers, it took 24 minutes. The city council uh, gets to speak as well. They, they make their council comments. They took 22 minutes. Eleven of those minutes were the mayor. 9.24, the meeting started a half hour late because they were in a closed session. There were 16 minutes of announcements and such, and then 11 speakers took 33 minutes. The council had five People spoke, um, as always, 24 minutes. The mayor took 13 of them. 9.13, the meeting started late because there were 33 minutes of presentations. And um, 13 people spoke for 25 minutes. That's pretty quick for 13 people to get everything they want to say in 25 minutes. And they know up front they have three minutes apiece. And the, the city council spoke for 43 minutes. 20 of those minutes were the mayor. Okay, and then I have several more months, and the average over the last nine meetings of public comments was 18 minutes per meeting. He's talking about only allowing 10 speakers or half an hour, but this is averaged 18 minutes per meeting. So it's not the public comments that are slowing down the meeting. In fact, I don't think anything's slowing down the meeting. I, I really fail to see a problem here. And if the meeting does go longer, it's the council's job to listen to the people at, at a time that doesn't prevent anyone who wants to speak from speaking. Well, it sounds like required attendance, I think, for uh, for many to see. I, I can imagine you're going to have all these uh, details, this data, and maybe graphically uh, presented tonight. That And that was one of my questions to you, Robin, is how would you like any of the constituents to be prepared for tonight's meeting that starts at 6? I think that it's really, it's it's simple. They do need to come down and fill out a card at 6. Um, this item should have been a public hearing, but the mayor put it on the consent calendar. So we have another little rule he wants to make. If anything's on the consent calendar, it can be pulled, and it can be trailed to the end of the meeting. So we don't know. I mean, we're in limbo here right now trying to figure out trying, what well, we can't know till we get there, if he's going to allow it to proceed early wow. in the meeting or if, if this item, even though it's on the agenda, is going to be late. Oh, my goodness. Um, so they should bring uh, a pillow <laughs> and slippers and be ready to get comfy and wait. Um, but to just talk about how precious free speech is and how this is the chance of so many people to address the council and for so many different reasons. The council is going to miss out and not just the people. But I think my main concern is, is how this is. it really is the very definition of an arbitrary and capricious rule to limit free speech. Capricious and maybe creative. I'm just, I can't help but mention that I've witnessed now in the Irvine City Council Chambers, Mayor Choi has, uh, he used a, a trade, a sister city uh, trip excursion that he took. He, I think he used up at least, a, I don't know, about 45 minutes with the pictures of him with other emissaries on that. (laughs) And that ran. He knew he had big, great park agenda items. And so he had, he brought out, um, 
uh, all kinds of projects that were uh, had not been even uh, considered by the council. There was a a a, 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 a change to a, an adjacent park to the the uh, city hall and. Uh, in a, in a Korean theme, and there were there were other things, and it would it was obvious that he was trying to squeeze us on time so that the many many uh, faceted great park agenda items were going to be deferred until maybe public comments started after nine thirty or, or near after ten o'clock. It was quite late, and he had made a unilateral decision of paring down every public comment. Uh, for uh, even the consent items, consent uh, calendar and agenda items, uh, from three to two minutes. And I, I learned that two minutes is not very much time to make a, a case, lay out some, um, uh, your, uh, one's position. So it's, uh, it's happening in one city after the next. And I know everybody's hands are full, but it's, it's something to um, go to a trusted activist, folks, and find out what's happening in your uh, jurisdiction to know uh, what uh, what you might be missing out on the the freedom of speech, uh, liberty is something that's um, it's so precious. I think we would it would be uh, we to lose it without our uh, activism is uh, is is a, a a huge loss. So um, I'm going to just remind everybody as we're beginning to close. My guest for this portion of Ask a Leader is. Robin Leffler. She's president of Costa Masons for Responsible Government. And we're talking about the public comments rules in the city of Costa Mesa. And the one thing I wanted also to sort out, Robin, was does the rule also address if you speak once, that's the only chance you get at that council meeting? Yes, for public comments, but you can also speak to any agenda item. But okay. you have to stay on topic, totally on topic on the, that. Okay. And so, I, do I have uh, just a moment of here? Of course. Please okay, take well, it. There's just a couple things. I really think that the, the public's time is just as important as the council, and this is so important. The council serves the people. It's not the other way around. Making it difficult for residents to speak to the council is denying their First Amendment right of free speech. And you're right. You can't say much in two minutes. I read about that. But if the Congress shall make no law abridging the freedom of speech, then the city council shouldn't either. Definitions of a bridge are to shorten something, cut something short, and restrict somebody's rights. That's exactly what's happening here, and I'm quoting from a letter from uh, Wendy Lease, who's one of our council yes. women. She had she put this letter in the paper. Right, right. Both of you were in the the Daily Pilot on Sunday, so yeah. Or, and Mr. Righeimer was in as well. Yes, the people of Costa Mesa who speak during public comments are just as important as others who come to address agendized items, and they're just as important as the city council. So um, it's just. It, 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 and another point I want, really wanted to make is this yes. isn't just going to put a damper on free speech. It's going to have even more than a chilling effect. By its very nature, it will prohibit and completely deny some members from exercising their right to speak because they will not be able to stay. Well, you mentioned the gentleman with the uh, stroke, I guess. Uh, yes, who's... and there was also a handicapped gentleman uh, who had to take a bus home. Did I mention that? He, he had to catch uh, um, his ride at a certain time, and he couldn't stay either. Well, and the students who want to find out what civic participation and responsibility is all about, they're not able to stay up until the wee hours with their school schedule. So it does uh, really cut off at the knees it what really the, the public can contribute. And I, I, I know there's so many ways that you'll, 
you'll want to address the better nature of the three-two kind of um, sort of split and uh, considering the public comment rule uh, revision. So um, it's I'll I'll be very interested in hearing how uh, how your numbers of uh, those you know your objective uh, data here about the number of comments and the the minutes they that were um, lapsed and then how much of that too was. Uh, taken up by the the, <laughs> the council itself, and which and yeah. you might even name names of who's using which time up and running that clock. So it's a it's a concern. So um, that you as you mentioned that this will take place tonight. The closed session, folks. That's at four thirty. It might run over, but the idea is for the open meeting to begin at six p.m. at the Costa Mesa City Council, seventy seven. Fair Drive, and if that seems like a hard place to find, most of us know where the Orange County Fairgrounds are. This is just south of the fairgrounds, right. so this is uh, it'll be easy to find. And um, the other leverage besides uh, talking about uh, uh, legal challenges, there's those electoral challenges. I don't know if Coast Masons for Responsible Government they've got lots of wind in their sails with some some charter. Uh, items that um, charter victories uh, in your portfolio. Perhaps there's electoral leverage that can be brought out uh, tonight and in subsequent times. And um, so I uh, would suggest that. Thank you, Robin Leffler, with uh, the Coast of Masons for Responsible Government. I wish you a very productive session tonight. Thanks for being on the show. Oh, you're so welcome, and this was, this was much, much, this was completely painless, Claudia. You made it so comfortable for me. Oh, I just no. Think, I think it's really strange when your elected leaders think the public gets in the way of public business. All right, folks, <laughs> that Robin Leffler gets the last word. Thank you very, very much. Bye. Bye-bye. I want to mention that the Coast of Masons for Responsible Government can be reached on the web at cm4rg.org. The City Council can be reached at costamesaca.gov for agenda items as well as how to email council members. So we're going to now go to announcements. The Claire Trevor School of the Arts ask patrons to be aware that the music event scheduled this Friday, December 6th, 2013 at 8 p.m. has been rescheduled. The new date will be Thursday, January 23rd, 2014, also at 8 p.m. And they're sorry about that inconvenience, but watch for that. Now, um, I want to mention the Environmental Nature Center is presenting programs to get the community in the holiday spirit all of this month. The Furoshiki Workshop, we talked about that last year in more detail. It will be held tomorrow, December 4th, 630 to 7.30. These beautiful Japanese wrapping cloths have been getting a lot of attention lately, and they're an eco-friendly way to wrap up those goodies for friends and uh, hosts, carry groceries, decorate the home, and so much more. You can join the environmental nature naturalist Leslie Hellowell, who was my guest last year talking about that, for an evening of creative wrapping and learn techniques for wrapping everything from wine bottles to watermelons. Are those still in season? Just in time for the holidays. The program's for adults. They've got a very basic fee. Prepayments required. Space is extremely limited. So you can call 645-8489 in our 949 area code, or you can go to the encenter.org, where you can register for many different activities. And a thought for those who are thinking uh, that serving the turkey over at the homeless shelters was a wrap. You're not done yet. 
A good many of you live in congressional districts represented by folks who want to pare down the Supplemental Nutritional Assistance Program, or SNAP, or we call it also the Food Stamp Program. For those concerned about those down on their luck and their nutrition calories, you can register your concern with your representative. They, if they don't hear from you, they assume that you don't care. Well, that's it today on Ask a Leader. Next week, we'll go uh, have on none other than Django Mangalam and his partner who have designed a solar stove. Bill and Melinda Gates, I hope you people are listening. We'll also hear from Bill Cook, chaplain for Orange County's American Legion chapter and an advocate for a veteran cemetery at the decommissioned El Toro base, also known as the Great Park. Remember that place? As I schedule remaining guest slots for the remainder of 2013, folks, I'm open to your request for particular topics or individuals. That's cshambaugh at KUCI.org. That's how you get it done. And next up, as always, is Senior Senor George Rosales with George Hat a Hat. Talk with you next week. Happy Hanukkah. And for goodness sakes, those of you who are picking up the pace with your shopping, be safe. Thank you for listening, everyone. Three, eight, three,